Welcome to the Mind Muscle Connection Podcast, a show that is dedicated to educating you on applying science-based training, nutrition, and mindset strategies from some of the top minds in the industry to help you build a leaner, stronger, and more confident self. I'm your host, Jeff Hain. Let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mind Muscle Connection Podcast. Today is a Q&A episode and I have three questions I want to dive into from my Instagram Q&A. Before I do that, I just want to go over a few ways you can help support the podcast. So first, if you're sick of just focusing on weight loss and instead want a body recomp, then my one-on-one online coaching program is for you. I hope you lose body fat and build muscle with my body recomp training, nutrition, and lifestyle methods. We look at things like your lifestyle and biofeedback to individualize your training and nutrition program to you and your specific needs. There's also at least one or two bottlenecks that we figure out that are keeping you from seeing the results you want to see. And those are things outside of the training and nutrition protocol, right? So things like lifestyle, mindset, stuff like that, right? And these are usually holding people back more than they think than, yeah, than they think. So if you're interested in finding out more about this, you can fill out the link in the show notes. You can click the link in the show notes to find out more about coaching and, or you can reach out to me on Instagram to chat about this in more detail. If you aren't interested in full coaching, I do one-on-one consultations, one-off consultations where we troubleshoot any issues you have and or map out a game plan. And again, the link to that is in the show notes. Lastly, if you want to learn more about a body recomp, what it is, how to do it, then I have my free masterclass on this topic and you can find the link to that in the show notes as well. Next, if you don't yet, if you don't, give me a follow on Instagram, Jeff, H-O-E-H-N underscore. And that's where I'm most active on social media. And you can reach out with any questions. And again, if you ask me some questions in my Q&A, I do two Q&As a week and and the questions I like the most, I usually come on here and answer them on this uh, podcast. And then lastly, if you found this podcast to be helpful in any way, if you could leave a rating and review, and that will help more people find this podcast. So with that out of the way, let's dive into today's question. So my first question I, I got was, let me just pull it up here real quick. Should you not lift as heavy during your period? So we're talking the menstrual cycle. And so obviously this is going to, there's this thought that, hey, we have a follicular phase and then we have the luteal phase just to, to break it down. And then in between there, you, you have the, your ovulation. And the thought is that, hey, in the follicular phase, you're going to feel better. You're not going to feel as as bad. So you can like just push it during that, that phase a little bit more. And then we have the luteal phase, which is usually usually that time period after ovulation leading up to the bleed. And that's where you get these symptoms of people not feeling as good, feeling weaker, et cetera. And so there's been the thought that, hey, maybe you should dial back your training during that period of time, right? So that's the assumption there with that. And this has led to, hey, should I just not, I'm sure that's what led to this question of, should I not lift as heavy during your period? And so I real quickly wanted to go over a recent paper here. So it's current evidence shows no influence of women's menstrual cycle phase on acute strength performance or adaptations to resistance training. So they basically what they were doing here is in the introduction, the bias towards excluding women from exercise science research is often due to the assumption that cyclical fluctuations in reproductive hormones influence resistance exercise performance and exercise induced adaptations. And so what they did is they wanted to look at, they wanted to examine and critically evaluate the evidence from meta-analysis and systematic reviews on the influence of menstrual cycle phase on acute performance and chronic adaptations to resistance exercise. And, And so the findings, they revealed limited and inconsistent evidence regarding the influence of menstrual cycle phases on strength, exercise performance, and hypertrophy. While some studies reported trivial effects of menstrual cycle phase on delayed onset muscle soreness. The authors questioned the validity of these results due to methodological limitations and small sample sizes, right? So they, you know, some of these meta-analysis and then the studies within those, you know, did find some potential effects 
on things like DOMS, right? How sure you are. However, again, the the way they went about the studies definitely questioned the results and then having the small sample sizes as well too. This review also highlighted the prevalence of poor and inconsistent methodological practices in the existing literature, leading the authors to caution against prematurely concluding that short-term fluctuations in reproductive hormones significantly impacts acute exercise performance or longer-term strength and hypertrophic adaptations to resistance training. Therefore, the review underscores the need for comprehensive menstrual cycle verification methods and emphasizes the importance of conducting high-quality research to better understand the potential effects of menstrual cycle phases on exercise exercise performance and training adaptations. Basically, they're saying, hey, like you really don't, there's no good evidence that shows you need to adjust your training because of the menstrual cycle, right? And this kind of leads to, we need to go back to basically how you feel, right? Again, there are certainly people who experience more symptoms in this, in that luteal phase, the period leading up to the, to your bleed. And then there's people who maybe don't have as many symptoms, right? And so I think you, you need to go off of, of subjective feeling, right? Just like you normally would. So this doesn't, again, this doesn't change how I would go about training for, for anybody, right? We would still go off their biofeedback, how they feel, how the client, rep- what the client reports, and then we would make our adjustments from there, right? So if you feel good, then you should push as you normally would, right? If, if you feel like, if you feel fine to me, that would be a negative to a net negative to be like, oh, hey, you know what? I'm in the luteal phase of my menstrual cycle. I need to periodize this. So I need to dial back my training when in reality, you feel fine. You could push it. You're going to be missing out on gains there. Now, if you aren't feeling good, then you may want to dial back intensity and or focus more on recovery outside of the gym. So if, if you are getting these kind of symptoms of you're feeling lethargic, not really wanting to train, et cetera, then maybe you need to listen to that and potentially dial back your intensity for a day or two and see, or maybe that's, yeah, again, for a day or two. Now, if this goes on for extended periods of time, then maybe you would consider a deload or something like that. But you should base it off of how you're feeling just like you would at any other time during your menstrual cycle or in general. I don't think you should have planned lighter weeks to match up with your cycle because if we do it that way, then we're going to be missing out on gains. And I think this really comes back to almost the same kind of talk around like deloads, right? Maybe you have a soft landing spot for a deload, but you're not going to be like, hey, after four weeks, I have to take a deload. Feel it out. If you're feeling good, why would you take a deload? And I think the same thing applies here for the menstrual cycles. Again, as of right now, nothing shows that you need to and that there's no impacts. And again, some meta-analysis and studies do show, but again, they, the small sample sizes and how they, how they went about finding that would be something that we would question. And so again, the research is not great on it. So again, base it off of how you feel and you should push your training as normal. And then again, if you're feeling you know, down again, look at your sleep, see if you can improve that. Look at stress management outside of the gym, look at your nutrition. Are you maybe lacking carbohydrates for the last couple of days, or you may be in a deficit? Could you eat a little bit more quote unquote nutrient dense, healthy foods during that period of time? Uh, but again, I think looking at those things first, and then again, if you still don't feel great, then maybe you do take a, a lighter session or two and then reevaluate from there. Hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully that, that added some, some insight into that. My next question is what are your thoughts on there is no overtraining? just under eating slash under recovery. I want to go, I think there's some truth to this uh, thought process, but I want to dive into this just a little bit more here. So let's first start with kind of the under recovery side of things, right? So first, I, I do think in most cases, many people don't have things outside of the gym dialed in. Okay. So uh, we're going to be looking at things like sleep, right? Uh, again, there's a lot of, I think, low-hanging fruit from a sleep perspective. Again, this doesn't mean you need to sleep 10 plus hours a night, but I do think that uh, if sleep is like a lot of people have 
wiggle room to improve sleep, okay? Poor stress management technique. So what I mean by that is, again, whether they use like alcohol or they use maybe watching TV late into the night, using your phone like late into the night, and then that obviously impacts sleep or any other unhealthy ways to cope with stress. Also using exercise to cope with stress as well too. A lot of times, yeah. Hey, I'm just going to go have an intense training session, beat myself up in a way, and that makes me feel better. I I like the way I feel afterwards, which again, that's a poor stress management technique there with that. And then poor nutrition overall, right? So we're looking at, okay, it's lacking your diet, your overall diet's lacking essential vitamins and minerals. Maybe you have like unbalanced macros, right? Whether that be you're high in fats and carbs, low in protein, or maybe you're really high in protein, really low in carbs, moderate fats, any combination where it's like the, the, the balance of your macros is just completely off there with that. And, or poor nutrition overall being like, hey, maybe you've just been in a, you've been under eating for multiple months, weeks on end. And so all these things are going to make quote unquote overtraining easier to do and more likely to happen, right? Because we're coming from a lower recovery amount, right? So your recovery is lower. Therefore, once you hit that overtraining status, it, it, it happens a lot sooner, right? Where somebody who's got a big, they, they're really good for recovery. Their sleep is great. They do a great job of really managing their stress and they have a low stress life in general, and they have really good nutrition habits and a good diet. Again, they're getting plenty of vitamins and minerals, balanced macros, et cetera. And then even we can take this from good programming and everything like that. They're going to have this large recovery ability, which means they're going to be able to get away with more training, right? They can really push their body more. Whereas somebody who's poor, their recovery ability is going to be lower, which means they can get away with less training and, and they're not going to be able to do as much training and, and, and get away with it, right? Like their recoveries before they get to that point to where now they're overtraining from their recovery. So I think people have the largest room for improvement here, right? I think that's where they really, where most people need to really focus on is this aspect of it, the, the recovery side of things, getting this dialed in. And again, this kind of comes back to when I talk to clients about bottlenecks outside of the gym, this is one of the big things is focusing on recovery against sleep, stress management, and then again, nutrition, but not necessarily nutrition and, oh, hey, you just need to restrict yourself more. It's again, making sure you have a good diet quality, a good balance of macros, et cetera. And so again, this is where I think people have the largest room for improvement and, and is a bigger concern than overtraining, right? Because you're by improving your recovery, you're going to allow for, you're going to have a larger delta there to be able to push your training, right? And it's going to make overtraining less likely. So I think recovery is the big one there. Now I'll take the under eating. So while some people do under eat, I do think this is less of a problem in my opinion. You do have people that exercise a ton. And then because of that, it's easier to under eat because you're expending so much energy. But again, I think that as a whole, that is a lot less common if you take the entire population. Now, people that listen to this podcast and are into fitness, maybe this is something that happens a little bit more because you're obviously somebody who's into fitness, you're into improving your body composition, et cetera. And because of that, you may have good habits or what I like to call diet, fad diet, good fad diet, like nutrition, right? Where again, it's just like, hey, you just need to eat vegetables and no, just vegetables and like really quote unquote clean food or get like high, really high protein. And it, you end up just eating the same foods. And, and again, maybe more like uh, diet foods basically there with that. But I do think the under eating is less of a problem overall. So it may not be under eating per se, but more so a diet lacking quality food and a balanced macro. So again, we take this person that again, maybe they are under eating, but I think the bigger issue too, is they're under eating, but they're also probably missing out on many vitamins and minerals and they don't have a good balance of, of macros, right? Because it's all about eating the, the lowest amount and uh, whatnot there with that. So in saying this, if you have dropped more than 10 to 15% of your body weight and, and are continuing to try and drop weight or maintaining your lowest and or you're trying to maintain your lowest weight, you would likely benefit from increasing your calories back to maintenance or a small surplus and, and see an improvement in recovery. Okay. So if you are somebody who, again, you've lost more than 10 to 
15% of your body weight recently or in general. And then you're like really trying to maintain that low weight where you're like, I don't want to see my weight come up whatsoever. I lost 30 pounds. I have to keep the 30 pounds off. If I see it come up one or two pounds, that's not good. And I'm really trying to maintain my leanest look that I have or lowest body weight. I think for you getting back to your maintenance, eating a little bit more and or going to a small surplus, you will see a big improvement in recovery from that. However, once you get back to maintenance calories slash a small surplus, continuing to increase your calories more will not increase your recovery, right? So there's this myth that, oh, if I just keep increasing calories, that's going to be better for recovery and whatnot. And that's not the case, right? I think a small surplus is good for recovery for a little bit of time, especially if you're retraining in that process, right? Because again, we want to, that's going to help make sure that small surplus goes mostly towards adding lean body mass. But obviously there's a lot of people in the general population that are in a small surplus for years on end. And that's obviously not good for recovery. We can rely on that to show us that, hey, being in a small surplus isn't going to be better for recovery past a certain point, right? So, so again, we just want to make sure that we understand that once you get out of that deficit and you're closer to maintenance, small surplus for a period of time, it's continuing to just do more, get more calories and isn't going to improve your recovery anymore, right? Again, we could think of the same thing when it comes to like protein, there's that optimal amount of protein and going more and more protein isn't necessarily going to be better for building muscle, right? So same kind of concept there. So again, I think that's where the is it under eating or, or is it under recovery or overtraining? We understand what to do from an under eating standpoint. So now let's talk about over overtraining. Most people shouldn't worry about overtraining because they don't because I don't think enough people train hard enough regularly or train enough in general for this to be an issue, right? Because again, people that are only going to train three to four days a week, okay, the likelihood of you overtraining is very small then. But then also people that typically train three to four days a week are also not like they're into their training, but it's, they're probably not like they, this would be the type of person that probably has some room to improve their, the things outside of the gym. So again, it's twofold there with that one, you're not training enough to elicit overtraining. And then two, you're not, you have a lot more wiggle room outside of the gym as well to get that dialed in sleep, stress management, et cetera. And then also on top of that, people just don't train hard enough anyways, right? It's That's more of an issue anyways. And again, when I say hard enough, not just going balls to the wall and trying to beat yourself up every single session from a hypertrophy standpoint, building muscle standpoint, pushing yourself enough to taking your target muscle close to failure and pushing that, right? That's what I mean there by that. So poor diet quality, poor sleep, unbalanced macros, poor stress management, extended periods of time in a deficit can all lower recovery and what you can do and adapt from training. We talked about all those things before. Those would be your big rocks that you'd want to worry about before worrying about overtraining, right? You probably have more room to get that recovery higher. If you are concerned about overtraining, here are a few tips. Focus on maximizing your recovery outside of the gym, sleep, stress management, improve diet quality, improve macros, improve your programming, right? Exercise selection, execution, what your goals are in your training, right? Again, improve your programming, like exercise selection. This would be like in execution, this would be like, hey, you're doing a back squat and you're going to failure on it. You are, maybe your technique is off like towards the end, right? So there it's a, maybe you were not going to absolute failure on that. You are improving your technique, right? And those things would be helpful there. And then also like just redundancy of exercises as well, right? So maybe you're doing a ton of exercises that put a lot of stress on your shoulder and it's like you end up doing a ton of one type of exercise when you can do other exercises that are going to hit other parts of your muscle and put less strain on your shoulder, right? So again, improving exercise selection from that standpoint, but also programming in the sense of making sure that you have your rest days strategically aligned and whatnot there. Also making sure that you don't go 110% every single session for months on end, right? Hey, in week one of a training cycle, you're not going as intense as you would in week four. And when you do go super intense, it's only for a short period of time versus 
all the time, right? So if you are concerned about overtraining, those would be some things that I would look at there and that's going to help with that. Just to sum this up, most people have a lot of runway to improve their recovery, things like sleep, stress management, overall diet quality, and should focus more on that versus worrying about if you're overtraining, right? Too many people don't train hard enough regularly or enough in general to worry about overtraining. Again, that's likely not an issue for most. And then once you get to your maintenance calories slash small surplus, eating more isn't going to improve recovery any more than that. So again, just wanted to hit that. Is it overtraining, just under eating, under recovery? I think it depends on the situation, but I think if anything, the the bigger area to focus on is the recovery side of things versus worrying about overtraining there on that. All right. So the last thing I wanted to do was go over another study here. And this was one that has been making its rounds on social media. And so this one is the anabolic response to protein ingestion during recovery from exercise has no upper limit in magnitude and duration in humans. So this was basically a paper looking at that myth of, hey, don't do more than, don't take in more than 30, 40 grams. I'm just making up numbers. I don't know what it exactly was, but don't take in more than 30 to 40 grams at one single time because your body's just going to not use the rest of that protein, which for one, doesn't make any sense. If you give your body 60, 70 grams of protein, it's going to use it. It just may not use it. The the kind of thought was maybe it doesn't use it for uh, building and maintaining muscle, right? It may use it for energy potentially or or something like that, which again, we don't want protein to be used for that. We want fats and carbs to be the main source there with that. But again, if we're really low calorie and, or we go really high protein, you may like really high protein overall compared to like carbs and fats, your body may start to use um, some protein for energy there uh, at, at that point. But again, your body does not waste that. But this paper looked at, okay, so how high can can we go? And, and it still uses it towards um, building and maintaining muscle, all right? And so they they looked at 100 grams of protein at one time, and um, it, it just extended the muscle protein synthesis window. So um, basically, it was shown that, hey, you can take up to 100 grams of protein, uh, and, and your body's still going to use that towards building muscle and um, building and maintaining muscle, right? So this dispels a myth that you can only get 30 to 40 grams at a time, and, and everything else isn't going to go towards building muscle, right? So really, what does this mean for you? So basically you have more flexibility when needed for protein intake. You don't have to stop at 30 to 40 grams at one single meal. Yes, we can extend this window in terms of, or we can just be more flexible with our protein time. We don't have to get 30 to 40 every three or four hours, right? A client asked me this. So does this mean that if I can't eat for, let's say you work out and then you're not going to be able to eat, you can get some protein in after your workout, but you're not going to be able to eat for six plus hours after that. Is that a good time to use it? And hundred percent, that would be a good time to use a lot, utilize this thought process on it. But yeah. Again, just shows that we can get more than 40 grams at one period of time. I just want to go over, I want to finish this with what it doesn't tell us and just my thoughts and how this would impact what I would do from a client perspective. First, what it doesn't tell us is that more protein overall is better. Okay. This doesn't mean that now you can go slam or this doesn't tell us that, Hey, now, if you just get hundred grams of protein every time you just, instead of having 150 per day, now you have three servings at hundred grams um, per day. And now you're at 300 grams of protein per day. That's not what it's telling us, right? I still think that optimal range is anywhere from 0.7 to about one gram per pound of body weight. You can go a little bit higher if you want, um, but that doesn't change what your overall protein intake should be for the day, right? It just tells us at one single time, how much can you take in? How would this, how would this work with uh, other food sources of protein? So they use milk protein, right? So a little bit easier to take in 100 grams of protein of that versus, hey, if you're doing like chicken, steak, turkey, stuff like that, 100 grams of that is a lot of chewing and food and, and whatnot. Would that still hold up for 
would it be feasible to, to do that? It would probably still hold up, but it would just be, is it a feasible thing? And then also looking at your gut health digestion, consuming that much protein at one time, again, from a food source like that. And again, even if it is milk protein, it's okay, maybe one time you can do that, but how's that going to be? How's that going to be if you do that multiple times on end and over time? What's the impact going to be on, on that standpoint? But just in the acute sense too, 100 grams of turkey of 100 grams of protein of turkey or chicken, that's looking at a lot of food there. That's going to be very challenging to do. How would this work with other sources of protein? How would this work with other populations? So this particular study was done in young, healthy males. Would this translate over to older adults? Would this translate over to women? Would this translate over to older women? Like, again, we don't know for sure on this. So again, we're, we're the constraint, one of the constraints here and limitations of this is that it was done in young, healthy males. Would this work over the long term? So again, this was short term. This was just in one day. Would the body potentially adapt to this over time where it's like, hey, you get 100 at one time, you haven't never done that before, your body's fine. But if you do that day over day, does it start to uh, impact how it goes about? Would it start to not use it towards muscle, towards building and, and maintaining of muscle? So again, some, just some questions that, that this still, that are still there based on, on this study. So my kind of thoughts summary on it is I, I still will push clients for a minimum of three protein servings per day when feasible. Um, I just think spreading it out overall is going to be um, optimal for maintenance and building of lean body mass, um, but also from a gut health and digestion standpoint as well too. So I'm still going to push clients for that. However, when needed, you can be flexible from time to time. So if you have a day where you can only get two servings of protein in per day, okay, now we know we can take in a little bit more and we're good to go uh, there on that. So just add some flexibility. So it really doesn't change too much on how I would go about day to day. Just It just adds a, some flexibility and a tool in the toolbox to use if we need to on certain days. So hopefully that was helpful. Let me know if you guys have any questions on this and I will chat with you next time. Thank you for listening. If you want more free content like this, follow me on Instagram at jeffh91 underscore or visit jhhealth.net. See you next time.